It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, proudly produced at Crawford School with the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about our amazing range of short courses and degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au. Do check it out. There's amazing stuff in there and something for everyone. And I am delighted today to be joined by a surprise guest co-host. It's uh, Professor Glenn Davis. Hello, Glenn. How are you? I'm good. Yourself? I'm really good. It's fantastic to have you back in the podcast cupboard. Thank, Thank you. Now, Glenn, of course, is a distinguished professor at Crawford School. He uh, sat on the APS review panel, and he previously served as the vice chancellor of the University of Melbourne. And of course, he was the distinguished host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Policy Shop. Well, we'll talk about that, I suspect. Yeah, I suspect we will. (laughs) So, Glenn, you've been at the ANU Crawford Leadership Forum this week, which has brought together around sort of 150 international and domestic speakers from the public sector, business, media, the academic think tank communities. And this year's forum was built around the theme of rebuilding trust in our public institutions and policymakers. What's your experience been like? What have been your sort of key takeaways from the forum? It's been a fascinating couple of days, Martin, and a quite a different tone from previous years. And that's partly because there's more young people there, and particularly from the social purpose sector. And that's, I think, provided an, an energy and a, a sort of perspective that was hugely welcome and has, I think, invigorated lots of the sessions. That said, the question of trust is a pretty tricky one. Everyone can lament it, and most people can provide exquisite data telling you that it's in decline. But when you say, so what next? What do we do about this? The answers are a lot less clear. And that's where I think a lot of the conversation is beginning to come to grips with some of the very difficult challenges here, including some people who say, well, there isn't going to be trust and we have to live in a post-trust world and we have to find institutions that can survive without the traditional forms of legitimacy that we just take for granted. That's an unexpected view, but it's one that I've heard now run a number of times. Well, it's certainly one that's worth considering, right? And um, of course, the issue of trust was something that came up in regards to the APS review as well. So have you taken anything out of the forum over the last couple of days that was something new that you learned? We had a fabulous session on the APS review yesterday where the chair, David Thody, uh, spoke alongside Heather Smith, uh, uh, an excellent secretary of Department of Innovation, and the Crawford School's own Helen Sullivan, who was, uh, and of course, we'll be hearing from them in just a few minutes. But they uh, really tried to grapple with this question of trust in the public service, and the data's pretty stark. The data shows very significant declines in trust. But it's not a universal trend and there are some very interesting innovations that are showing that you can, particularly by being very citizen-focused, make a difference. And a lot of discussion about a New South Wales initiative called Service New South Wales, which is a sort of one-stop shop for all of the services that the New South Wales government operates. This is a model that's been talked about and indeed experimented with for 20 years across Australia um, and particularly significant in parts of Canada where it's done very well. And the data makes clear that it makes a difference. Nearly 80% of people who use Service New South Wales rate it highly and trust it. And that tells you government can, by rethinking how it interacts with citizens, make a difference. Now, I get why trust in government might be declining. The reasons for that seem, you know, many and obvious to me. But I, I struggle a little bit more with why trust in the public service might be declining. To put you on the spot, what, what do you think are the kind of key reasons for that? 
Well, a number of people pointed out, in fact, in the session, that people use government in public service in quite interchangeable ways. And when you separate them out in a relatively rigorous way, there are marked differences. If you're asking about politicians, you get one set of responses. If you're asking about the people who manage your Medicare card and payments and who look after so many services, you get a higher rate of response. So people don't necessarily distinguish. They also don't distinguish between jurisdictions. So they often are fonder of levels of government closer to them. They often have warmer views about local government than about federal government. And that's replicated in organisations where you tend to rate very highly the people you work with, but rate very lowly those strange people up there distantly who are supervising you. (laughs) You know, there's something human about wanting to attach to institutions that are close and familiar. And I think there are some lessons in that in then how we might go about rethinking the trust equation. Well, we're, certain, we're going to hear, as you said, from Helen Sullivan and indeed David Thody shortly, um, and I'll be interested to get your views on that afterwards. But you mentioned before, in fact, I mentioned before, I, I mentioned before that you were the host of the excellent Policy Shop podcast. Uh, it was a podcast produced uh, at the University of Melbourne that looked at global public policy. It was a terrific podcast. Uh, in fact, a while ago, one of our Facebook podcast group members, Liam Hughes, asked us about what had happened to the podcast and whether it was going to make a, a comeback. What it, Can you reveal your plans? <laughs> well, it belongs to the University of Melbourne, not to me. I spent 14 very happy years as the Vice Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, enjoyed it immensely. And in my last couple of years there, I was trying to think about this question of how to reach out, how to do engagement, and decided leading by example was always a good idea. So we, we started the, the policy shop. We did just under 50 episodes over about two years. And discovered that wonderful thing, Martin, that you know from this one, that once you've got a podcast, you can ask almost anybody around the world if they'd like to speak, and a remarkable number of people agree. So one of the great joys was just the conversations, able to talk to lots of interesting um, Bruno de la Tour and and, uh, Martha Nussbaum and a whole range of really interesting people, sometimes in the studio, but just as often uh, by telephone or from their studio, wherever they happen to be around a a big range of topics, all of them with a policy focus, but in so many different domains. Uh, It was done for the University of Melbourne. It belongs to the University of Melbourne. And when I left in the last episode, I got to say thank you and goodbye. But I think it's probably more appropriate for them to decide on the future. And, you know, when you leave, you leave. Well, I hope the University of Melbourne are listening to this and decide (laughs) decide to resurrect it and, uh, and bring you back, Glenn. So, listeners, you've heard us talk about the uh, the issues with trust in the public service. You've heard us talk about the Policy Shop podcast. We're keen to get your thoughts on all of the issues that we talk about today. And the best way to do that is to get onto the Facebook group. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. You can also reach out to us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum or go old school. Shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Now, if you do jump onto the Facebook group, you have the opportunity to win yourself one of our exclusive Policy Forum Pod mugs. You haven't got one of these yet, have you, Glenn? No, they sound exquisite. <laughs> Maybe we might give you one of these before you leave the studio. So there's two ways you can get hold of one of these. Number one is you suggest to us a topic for a podcast, which we like to make into a Policy Forum pod. If you do that, you will get your hands on one of these mugs. The second way is to have your comments and questions read out on the podcast. Once you've had five of them read out, uh, then you will get your hands on one of these mugs. Again, we need you to make a note of when you actually hear those comments and questions and just leave us a note under the Facebook post. We've had some great discussions on the Facebook group this week. We've heard people's thoughts on what makes a democracy and whether in some cases democracy is nothing more than a label. Now, somewhat selfishly on the Facebook group, I also asked people for new pods to listen to whilst I was away on my holidays last week. Uh, I got some great suggestions in there, uh, including the party room, inside science, and uh, I had plenty to listen to while I was away. What podcasts can you recommend for us, Glenn? Well, like lots of people, it's just fun to discover podcasts. And uh, when I exercise or travel, that's when I tend to use them a lot. Uh, Often we sort of all time shift ABC Radio National programs, uh, listening to Geraldine Duke's excellent program, International Relations, uh, Saturday Extra is always fun. And of course, um, who hasn't been listening to Philip Adams for 40 years or so? But I've recently enjoyed as well a number of international ones that I found fabulous. Michael Lewis, the author, has a great podcast called Against the Rules, seven episodes discussing 
why the role of umpires has become so controversial in American life, but he uses this to rift into some really interesting discussions. I have heard about this one. Uh, You're the second person to recommend this to me. I might give that a listen. Very, very good. I've often enjoyed listening to Ross Roberts' Econo Talk, which comes from Stanford University. Uh, He has a range of guests, uh, often on the conservative side of the political spectrum, not always, uh, but intelligent questions, good conversations, interesting thoughts, and often makes me listen to things that I wouldn't have chosen otherwise, which is great. Uh, And of course, David Runciman's Talking Politics is a standard favorite for everybody. But the other one I've really enjoyed uh, in the last few years is the BBC series The Essay, which is a series of different voices, are currently a group of women talking about men in very interesting ways, but uh, often about art, often about culture, but uh, it's 15-minute reflections on on aspects of life and not always British, a a big British focus, but uh, often a nice reflection on sort of the world as we all find it um, lots of fun. And there's uh, eccentrically a rather nice podcast from the Victorian Supreme Court called Gertie's Law about how courts work and about how choices are made in the court system. And it's a rather nice listen. There's some great recommendations there. I feel like I might have to take another holiday to go and listen to all these podcasts. I'm looking at producer Yulia whether she might allow me another holiday next week. Yeah, I think that's probably... She's nodding. That's good. (laughs) She's nodding. That, that, That sounds positive. Now, let's crack on with the topic of this week's show because we want to have a look at the responses to the preliminary recommendations of the Thody Review uh, of the Australian Public Service. In March, the APS Review set four priorities for change to future-proof the public service. They were a stronger culture, governance and leadership model, more operational flexibility, continued investment in talent and capability, and stronger internal and external partnerships. As of June, the Priorities for Change consultation paper had received 737 comments, ranging from the need to be clear and specific in recommendations to building capability across the system, as there was little confidence the current system could support doing things differently. And this goes back to this issue of trust again, Glenn. So we want to ask on today's pod, how can the review contribute to building greater trust in the APS? And as we flagged up, we've got a very special conversation for you today. Uh, It doesn't involve either Glenn or I. It involves Helen Sullivan, the uh, director here at Crawford School, uh, in conversation with the chair of the APS Review, David Thody. So uh, David is, as I said, the chair of the Australian Public Service Review. He's had a long and distinguished career in the private sector and was formerly the chief executive officer of Telstra. Let's have a listen to what they discussed. Glenn and I will be back after this. So, welcome, David. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're here to talk a, a little bit about the uh, the APS review that you've been leading and also to have uh, some conversation about uh, trust and distrust, which is one of the, the themes of our current ANU-CARF leadership forum that's happening now. So we can start with the first. Mm. Um, As of June, the Priorities for Change consultation paper received 737 comments. One of the frequent responses was that the public had little confidence that the current system could support doing things differently. Why do you think that confidence that positive change can happen is so low? Well, first, is a good question. Uh, I mean, a lot of the comments did show this lack of confidence. And and by the way, I should quickly add a bit of a lack of trust mm. in government and the public service about their ability to change. Um, I think there was a general sense that both from the public service itself and from external parties that, you know, there's been a lot of really good reports done over the last 14 to 15 years that have had been very insightful and uh, really you know, provided some great recommendations, but they weren't all implemented. So I think there is a healthy cynicism about will this be different? Uh, is there really an appetite for change? Uh, and will there be investment for change? Because uh, change does require investment. So you're right. That has been very much the uh, the tenor of the feedback. Mm. And, how, I mean, you've always made a, a, a very clear um, point that for you, 
precisely because of what appears to have happened to many reviews in the past, that for you, leading this review was was very much about being clear about what could happen and what should happen. So this, mm. you know, it wasn't just going to be an analysis of the problem. It would be a set of these are the things you, that you might do differently. I mean, in your interactions with uh, and you, you know, along with that, you've done a lot of consultations. So, in mm. your interactions with people, do you, do you feel that that has that has resonated with people? You know, when you say that, do people believe you that that you mm. know you're focused on the the what can be, um, and that um, you're you'll be able to influence uh, the decision makers to uh, to take your advice? I think there's a strong belief uh, that that is the right focus, and they encourage me in that <laughs> endeavour. I think across the public service, um, you know, a, a real desire to see change and to see it implemented. I think rightly a little concern, especially with a new government coming in, uh, well, at least a number of new ministries, et cetera, and a new cabinet. Will this stick? Are they going to, is the political process going to allow real change? And we really don't know the answer to that. The one thing we will say, though, that this is an independent uh, report and we are going to put forward you know, as strong and as directed and as, uh, you know, we hope, practical uh, recommendations we possibly can. Okay. So can we go into to some of this uh, in a little bit more detail? Yeah. So, you know, beyond that broad response, there were some much more uh, specific responses about um, the need to really build capability across the system, yeah. uh, striking a balance between standardizing the way that the service works and giving public organizations flexibility. You know, those things are mm. uh, clearly strong themes. Mm. Um, now, one of the things that came from the APS 200 committee uh, was a demand for more departmental freedom from chief bureaucrats. So what direction do you think the APS should go, more or less standardization? Well, th there's not a, a simple answer to that question because you need to do both. Mm. Uh, and that is just the nature of complex, large institutions in the world today. You need to have both deep uh, functional capability, but you also need to be able to operate as one when you need to, because that's driving efficiency. It's actually enabling you to do the deeper functional uh, job more efficiently and more effectively. So I'm afraid you've got to do both. And mm. if you look at any large institution, be it public sector, private sector, or even academic, um, everyone's having to do that. So you need to have this joined up capability. Um, and that is very important across systems and core infrastructure. Uh, and then you need deep domain capability, you know, for in the public sector's um, case across different uh, departments. Mm. So it's getting the balance right. So a lot of people have said, well, you're calling for greater centralization. And with by be uh, as they say that with red flags being uh, waved vigorously, um, and the answer is no. We're not calling for centralisation. We are calling for a more standardised approach to many of the things that are standard across all the different departments and agencies in uh, the APS. But we are hoping to free up and enable. Uh, those same departments and agencies get on and do what they need to do to support their minister in policy delivery and regulation. And is there is there an easy example you could give of of some kind of standardisation that you think you know the review has identified that you think could actually benefit the APS as a whole without diminishing freedom in departments? Yeah, I, and unfortunately, it's the age old chestnut of digital capability and IT which uh, we've tried many times before and uh, we have not been as successful as we would like to. But I even go back to Agimo, bang, back, gee, that's 15, 20 years ago. But there's no question uh, you have to enable your digital infrastructure and that means some standardizations of processes. I mean, let's say it's, you know, financial, HR systems, even procurement systems. There's an enormous amount of standardization you can get there, which I think does lend itself well to shared services. Uh, 
And then also at the productivity end, when the different types of tools you use. However, you've got to give freedom for the departments to do what they need to do, be it um, you know DHS in terms of benefits payments or agriculture in terms of import-export. So there's still enormous capabilities that are specific to a department, but the standardized uh, prices need to come from those shared services area. So uh, we think that needs investment and uh, it needs uh, centralized uh, control and policy management, and it will need uh, dollar investment as well. Mm. And one of the things, of course, that happened subsequent to the election was that Prime Minister Scott Morrison declared himself Minister for the Public Service. Yes, he did. Um, do you think uh, him taking this role is going to help with that kind of standardization that you, you're describing um, mm. and with the reform more generally? Yeah, look, I do. I think uh, it's. I think it's very appropriate and correct that the Prime Minister is the Minister for the Public Service. Uh, The Public Service is the critical delivery engine for the government and they need to be appreciated and recognised for that, but also held to account as well, uh, as any good organisation is. And I think it's uh, encouraging that uh, Minister Hunt is also the Minister assisting the Prime Minister in this, and he is leaning into this report and wanting to understand the recommendations, understanding, you know, the benefits and the costs um, Mm. as we go forward. Uh, And he is very actively looking at a number of our suggestions at the moment. Mm. And might one of them be to trade off, if you like, um, the demand, for example, for significant investment into, you know, digital uh, capability with maybe an end to the efficiency dividend that's been plaguing departments for, well, many Mm. years now. Mm. Well, firstly, we're not so much looking at the means of funding the investment. Mm. Um, However, we are making the case strongly that if you invest in digital enablement, uh, that both the infrastructure level, but also you know artificial intelligence and big data, etc. Um, that the benefits are enormous in terms of both productivity, but very important is better outcomes for citizens. And uh, a big theme of our report is how do we deliver better services to all Australians, uh, and how do we measure that? How do we you know put out their you know, real metrics that uh, drive us to outcomes, which is very similar to what New South Wales has done. And I think why the Prime Minister has probably picked up on service New South Wales a little, which is only one part of an enormous array of services that are delivered by the Australian Public Service. So, yes, uh, I think that it's um, very important we look at both sides of the ledger. I mean, you mentioned uh, public services and good outcomes for for all Australians. Of course, Mm. one group that is consistently um, underserved, if you like, um, and where outcomes are are consistently poor um, are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So the Australian New Zealand School of Government recommended introducing Indigenous values into the public service. Mm -hmm. What's your, your response to that? Well, we do strongly believe that the public service should be a leader in the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and of inclusive behaviour. So, yes, we have a section on, uh, you know, some uh, thought thinking about what the public service could do. The only comment I'd make is um, because the public service is who they are, uh, serving government, parliament and the people of Australia. We just need to be a little bit careful we don't get ahead of government uh, and so there's alignment there. But I do think that there's a very strong role for the service to take uh, in you know, serving that very important community, which uh, you know really defines Australia in many ways, mm. and and is that I mean I I absolutely take the point about not getting ahead of the government. Mm. I mean, and I just wonder if the the appointment of the of the first Indigenous minister for um, Aboriginal affairs is actually um, an indication, perhaps, that um, there might be um, more alignment between what you're recommending and and what he might be wanting to do. Yes, I think there is a tremendous opportunity there. Uh, That's not something we've had a chance to really explore yet uh, with uh, still the new government to sit, but we are very engaged in that. And and also, I should quickly say, with the, the new 
Australian, you know, the Indigenous um, agency now, I think there's a, a strong um, connection we've had with them as we work through this, and they've been very helpful. And on on the – this takes us into, I think, uh, a question about trust, which you've already alluded to and I, I want to, mm. to come back to. But um, but before we get there, one of the things that, that has intrigued me, and certainly this goes to uh, the Prime Minister, yeah. uh, you know, being – um, the the chief person uh, responsible for this reform, you know, he's declared himself in favour of delivery, mm-hmm. um, and you know, yes. and of course one can't argue with that. Um, yep. But my question, I think, is, and I've been asking some APS uh, people this question: is to what extent? Do we risk blurring the boundaries between both what different tiers of government do? Mm. You know, so where delivery properly sit um, and risking the APS sort of overreaching Mm. um, in its desire to to get more involved in delivery. Mm. And also, is there a risk that people, particularly at the more senior levels, feel themselves obliged to become much more involved with service users in a way that perhaps detracts from them doing the job they should be doing? Well, I I hope not on both uh, counts. I think that in our analysis of the service, it has been very clearly about what they are responsible for doing today Mm. and are they delivering on that. Now, as you know, there are many different types of organizations across the service. So some are very outcomes focused. And so we run big call centers. uh, We run uh, big service agencies like tax and then there are those that are very policy driven, which include regulation, uh, and they are a different, uh, you know, type of organization. So what we're saying is where there is appropriate, you know, real delivery that you can put metrics around, do so. Mm. We have, we are yet, like everyone else in the world, trying to, to find how do you measure what is good evidence-based policy management. Um, and it's very difficult because it's time-bound uh, in the sense that it can be seven, ten years before you really determine whether there has been good policy. Um, you know, you can you can argue that the, how policy is presented and the options put on the table and the evidence base, et cetera, but that still doesn't give you the ultimate mm. outcome, which is, you know, the, the policy actually achieves what you intended it to do and you understand the consequences mm. of, of what that policy is. So uh, I think in terms of the overreach comment, I think you've got to be very careful that it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, but you do spend enough time simplifying it so you can truly say what we're doing. We measured this area. This is how we're going. In this area, we are going to wait and see how it actually will turn out. So that's what we've tried to do as we've uh, attempted to provide real outcomes that the service can be measured against. Now, you've mentioned New South Wales a couple of times, mm. um, and um, over the last couple of days, it's been announced that uh, you've been appointed to lead a review of the federal financial relations from a state perspective, and you've been invited to do so by the, the new New South Wales Treasurer, Dominic uh, Perrottet, who said that financial relations across the nation's three tiers of government are a mess. Now, it's not the first time somebody said that. Um, it's a, that's a, a regular uh, catch cry in Australia. Um, how are you hoping uh, to improve financial relations between the state and the federal level, given that this is such a challenging issue? I think that's why I've got six months before <laughs> I actually have to answer that question. Um, but let me just have a go. Um, look, one of the things that has come through uh, as we've done a review of the Australian public service is just the, as you look to the future, just these these relationships with Commonwealth, with uh, external parties is going to become more and more important. You know, the world of, um, which was never true, but, it, you know, the world of being able to do policy development, you know, just in your department mm. was never true and is even less true today. So we need to have a public service that's more externally focused and willing to engage more so they can bring forward, you know, well-considered policy or delivery um, ideas. 
And so we've got quite a focus on how do we improve federal-state relations in our report. And then when the Treasurer of New South Wales asked me would I look at it from the other side, it was a bit hard for me to say no (laughs) at that point. So uh, yes, I'm looking forward to it, but literally that was a week ago and – and I'm just starting now to do a little bit of background reading uh, about our constitution and then the reality of what's going on. Um, but I do hope that there's a way to simplify it because mm. what, what happens over time is that um, habit, um, ways of doing things start to emerge and then they become institutionalized. And someone needs to sit back and say, this isn't achieving what we wanted to to do. And, of course, at the end of the day, it's about delivering services to Australians, to every citizen. And uh, at the moment, um, often it seems to be a negotiation between the state and the federal level and not necessarily looking after, you know, who Mm. is the actual end recipient, which is the citizen. So I think there's a desire on both. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Decides to get to that point, but uh, we need to look at what's getting in the way and then see if we can somehow simplify it and provide a way through it. But uh, let me come back to you in three months and (laughs) see how I'm going. (laughs) Oh, we'll certainly invite you back. It's uh, (laughs) uh, no doubt about that. So we want to talk a a, a bit more about trust, which you've already raised. Um, And if we can start with... Um, in a report that was released ahead of the final review that, mm. that includes the views of 128 top-level bureaucrats, they described the public service as slow, reactive, siloed, um, and other words were overwhelmed, self-serving, and ploddingly functional. I mean, none of these um, are, are terribly complimentary. Mm. Um, th- these kinds of comments suggest that, um, that there are doubts, as we discussed earlier, that the APS could do things differently. Is this to you an indication that that people um, don't trust uh, the bureaucracy, or is this more an issue of simply the the surrounding um, environment hasn't permitted genuine reform to take place? And what do you think the review can do to help that? There's a lot of questions in there. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, well, let me come back to the public services view of themselves. Look, I think they're pretty self-critical, to be honest. Mm. I mean, they. They see um, the things that get in the way every day. Um, they want things to change. Uh, so they tend to, to characterize themselves in quite negative terms. Mm. But I think that underlying that is that they aspire for something better. So I take that as a positive. If if they were saying about themselves, everything's fine, you know, we don't need to change, I think I'd have more concerns than them actually saying, look, uh, we, we think we can do better. I think there's a genuine desire to change. Um, I think that they, like everyone else, is concerned around the degree of politicization of the service um, as things that are getting in the way that prevent them from doing what they really want to do. Um I think that, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about a couple of other areas uh, in a moment. But, and they they see the same reports that we all are talking about here at the moment around lack of trust in the service. Well, in fact, I should be clear: lack of trust in government. Mm, mm. And often people are not clear about whether it's government or the service. But the truth is that there is a decline in uh, the. Trust in the public service as well. So we, we've tried to sit back from that and we've looked at a couple of, you know, reports from around the world that what drives trust in the public service. It's very interesting. Um, people, if they know about the public service, what they are looking for is openness and honesty, which is pretty basic for trust. They're looking for 
a sense of integrity, you know, so that there is balance and there's considered uh, opinion. Uh, interesting. Um, another very important one is responsiveness, which is, gets into the delivery mm. of services. If you've had a a good experience with uh, dealing with the service, you're far more inclined, well, obviously, to be more satisfied and therefore to be more trusting because they did what they were saying they're going to do, and a sense of fairness as well um, that they're not being unfairly treated. Which I know, you know, talking to many people in the service, people are very aware of that. But how do we make sure that, that really manifests itself? So I do think that there is a number of things that the service can do that will have really practical and I think, you know, measurable outcomes on improving trust. It isn't a, uh, an ethereal concept, it mm. is something that's very practical. And I do think the service needs to really steer into that. And I think that's the same with any institution. There was a, a very good book uh, written by a guy called John Nuttall, uh, which talked around connect, being connected. It was about institutions. And, and it said, you know, institutions haven't been trusted for, you know, a couple of centuries now. Anything big, sort of remote, you know, that where I get depersonalized services, you know, I don't like. Mm. Uh, and I think we're all the same. But it really did, he really made the point that if you can start to, you know, you know really implement uh, some of these uh, practical uh, initiatives around responsiveness about being more open and honest and transparent, that you can really move the dial. And mm. I think that's what we need to do. Mm. And on that point of uh, connection, um, which always takes me back to E.M. Forster and his, you know, only connect as as you know being the uh, the real watchword for for everything. Yeah. What's the the balance? Do you think between connectivity in terms of digital enablement and how that uh, can streamline services, make things much more simple, mm. um, and also give. Uh, particularly younger users, mm. a kind of experience that they expect because they get it from everywhere yeah. else. You know, how do you balance that with a sense that in some service areas you might actually want and need an ongoing relationship with human yeah. beings? Well, I think this uh, directly uh, applies to Service Australia because transactional work um, can be digitized very easily. You know? I mean, at the state level, getting a license, you know, renewing rates, all those sorts of things. And there are some transactional uh, elements in the tax office. When you submit your tax return, you can do a transaction. But if you're talking around in the benefits area where you've got case managers, complex issues, that's a very different um, type of a connection that you need to create. Now, sometimes you can use um, like scheduling a meeting or sharing information or, um, you know, allowing the individual to see what is in the case but you still need face-to-face -face contact. So I think we've got to be very careful that we don't think digital is going to solve every problem that we or challenge we've got. Uh, but there's still an enormous opportunity for us to do more digitally. And, I mean, from customs clearing, we've already seen it in immigration. Um, we're seeing it in health services. But let's not leave out, you know, the very human element that we hope will allow people to have more time to treat people as individuals. We seem to have a consistent theme, both about simplicity, but also about you know the potential and the limits of, of digital. Mm. Um, and I wonder if I might throw in a question that came to me be just before we started talking, which is that um, at Griffith University, Professor Bella Stantic has, has sort of taken um, Australia by storm by being able to, to predict the right outcome from the federal election and ah. saying that, you know, it wasn't a Scott Morrison's win wasn't a miracle. It was entirely predictable. predictable. You mm. just had to know how to use um, social media data right. and how to, you know, really dig into big data in a very effective way. And that seems to me to be pointing to um, both the things that you've been talking about, about the systems and, and, and how we use them, but also uh, maybe a level of, of ambition um, and a preparedness to forego 
tried and tried and, mm. and trusted ways of doing things and sources mm. of data that we've relied upon for these new sources of data that perhaps some of us might be very skeptical about, but which right. he argues, you know, right. actually point you in the, the direction in the right of the direction. right answer. I haven't seen that article. I, I look forward to, to reading it or, or to hearing more. But I do agree. Um, I, I'm a great advocate of data analytics, I think, um, Artificial intelligence, and let me be clear, when I talk around artificial intelligence, all I'm talking about is the use of algorithms mm. that have been tested in many algorithms. I'm not talking around humanoid uh, artificial <laughs> intelligence. Um, and I, I do think that the service needs to be more at the leading edge of that. Now, uh, I think they need to be testing it and trying it and learning about it. But I will make the point um, – that you know, big data and artificial intelligence is only as good as the data that you have. <laughs> and a lot of the quality of the data that is sitting out there is not that good. Now, mm -hmm. in social media sense, um, people say what they will say and therefore be able to analyze that and determine you know, really what a trend is or not is important. But uh, I think we've got a long way to go, but we should be. Uh, and I think the service is trying but maybe needs some encouragement uh, to really be at the forefront. I think that's why behavioral economics was part of the little bit of uh, pilot they did within PMNC. I think they need to do far more of that and then bring data analytics, use um, you know psychologists and uh, deep sociological thinking with big data. But I, I also will say that one of the biggest challenges we've had as we've done the review of the services, that at times there's a paucity of data or at least accessible data uh, to really, you know, many of the trends we've, we think and people will talk about, like let's take the hollowing out of the public service, you know, where, you know, people say, well, you know, there's enormous lack of skills. It's all been because of ASL caps. We can't find data to prove that. Mm -hmm. Now, it's probably, it is true, but it's very hard to find data. So, mm -hmm. Uh, it's not a data-driven culture. I think uh, the culture within the public service is often about ideas and about uh, sharing of you know, working as teams to do things rather than looking hard at the data, being really discerning about it. Uh, so we need to keep encouraging that going forward. So I hope all those comments sort of somehow mm. come together because it, it is very, very important as we go forward. Mm. And it also speaks to um, something else that I know has, has sort of been a, a theme, uh, perhaps an underlying theme in the in the review, which is this idea of the policy profession mm. um, and yeah. the, uh, the, 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 the suggestion maybe that um, this yes, there's a lot of enthusiasm for ideas and and a, and a deep commitment to um, you know developing good policy, whatever that might be. Mm. Um, but that maybe uh, there for various reasons that hasn't translated into uh, effective policy. And so this point that you make about you know combining a commitment to ideas with a commitment to data, mm. I just wonder if thinking about something like a policy profession might help you with that, mm. where you do that joining up, as you were saying earlier, across um, departments focused right. on you know people with a particular interest in data yeah. analytics, for example. Well, very much so. And we do think that the, the policy profession uh, is a very important important part of building out capability across the service. But I, I'd, if I come up just another level, um, this goes back to what makes the service, you know, what it is and to continue to perform highly, uh, it is people. And, and people need to be developed. You need to invest in people. So we've been looking at actually you know, the amount of investment, learning and development, executive development across the service. And by the way, there's been some wonderful examples. ANSOG has been great. You know, Crawford plays a critical role in terms of, uh, you know, developing management. But in general, uh, we think the public service is about a factor of 50% lower than the private sector in terms of investment in learning and development per individual. Um, and so I think you've got to face into that one. It's always a discretionary line item in the budget. And if times are tough, that tends to be the one that goes. Also, you've got to, if you're looking to the future, you've got to invest in your future leaders. So if we're looking at, you know, the next couple of decades, you know, what are we doing now with the 25 to 35 year olds to really give them broad global experiences? 
um, that can really then they can bring back as they move through into more senior roles or different types of roles. So we think that the, the, the implementation of the professions model, which would include policy, is a way, it's not the only way, but a way to try to build this depth of, of skill and also that would break uh, some of the silos down, as you alluded to. And that would be across, you know, data analytics, policy, even, you know, the legal profession and what that's already underway. Mm. Um, you know, human resources or uh, is a, another area which tends to be very silo-driven. So, uh, and, and then the areas of delivery. So we hope that this can uh, really make a difference going forward, but it will need, you know, a commensurate level investment as well. Yes, and I imagine that will be a very tough conversation yeah. for, for somebody. And by the way, have. I'm not necessarily saying incremental. We've got to find it somewhere. So yeah. we've got to drive efficiencies and uh, and we've got to be responsible with the money that we have. But there may be, you know, some upfront investment that's required. It's great that you've you've referenced um, academia and ANZOG and, and indeed Crawford in your um, mm. uh, response about building capability. Um, do you think that there's in the review, have have you seen evidence of where that relationship between academia and, and policy um, and public services more broadly could be strengthened? Oh, undoubtedly. I, I think um, you know the importance of of the public service looking to the academic community for deep thinking. Um, you know, using answer, but you know the school of government. I mean, it, and right across Australia as mm. well. Um, we're not good at reaching out across these arbitrary boundaries, and and I would also say the private sector as well. Uh, you know, I know that the private sector probably doesn't understand the workings of the public sector or even academia well, but we need to get a far better connection, you know, relationship and uh, sharing of of ideas and and thoughts. So. Yes, I think there's lots of opportunities, and and we've tried to use ANSOG in, in our process, and they've been really great. They've deep um, thinking in a number of areas. Some we just can't get into the recommendations; just a bit early, but they will, uh, I'm sure, prove the test of time mm. uh, going forward. And that, and very importantly, you raise the point: it's you know, it's not just academia and and public sector organisations; it's also the the private sector, mm. and and um, obviously that's one of the the driving forces behind the Crawford Leadership Forum that that's yeah. happening at the moment. Yeah. If yeah, I can right. ask you to um, finally just uh, project yourself into the future, um, mm. and you know you've talked about a wide range of um, of issues, but you've also come back to a number of key themes, and, and simplicity has been been one of them. Mm. Um, connectedness has been another. Mm. Um, what do you think? Or what would you hope an effective public service would look like in maybe 20, 30 years' mm. time mm. when everybody's taken all of your recommendations right. and implemented them? I would hope that the public service is you know, dynamic and flexible and highly trusted would be a really good starting point. It's got to be seen as a really attractive place to work because we've got to attract really good people. And we do today, mm. but we need to continue to do that. And I hope that it would change from being what at times is seen as a little insular to being this external embracing learning organization mm. that reaches across the traditional boundaries uh, because at times it is, uh, I think, caught uh, in that process. And and I think just lastly, it has got to be at the digital forefront. It's got to be able, not the hype, but really be using, you know, it has incredible sources of data, using those technology uh, capabilities to really deliver great outcomes for Australians. And if we can get to that, that there's a sense of serving Australia, serving government and parliament, serving your minister, then I think that would be a great outcome. And I think it would serve uh, us all very well going forward. Great. Thank you so much, David. Listeners, don't forget to stick around for part three of our podcast, where we'll go over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, let's hear from Mark Kenny about his Democracy Sausage podcast. 
Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back, and thanks once again to our guests today, Helen Sullivan, doing the interview there, and David Thody with his very interesting thoughts about the future of the public service. Keen to get your thoughts, listeners, on what you thought of that discussion. Let us know in the usual way. You can uh, tweet us at Apps Policy Forum. You can email podcast at policyforum.net. Or best yet, you can jump on the Facebook group. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook and let us know. So I still have Glenn with me and we're going to go over some of your comments and suggestions for future pods. Now, the first one is uh, that I want to tackle is a comment which was on last week's podcast. The podcast was called A Policy Wish List. It was Helen Sullivan in Isla Cooper and Janine O'Flynn. And in that episode, we asked their panel for their wishes on what policies Australia and its new government should put in place. So it was sort of wish list. Uh, and they talked about everything from tackling climate change to addressing disadvantage and all points in between. And we had a comment from Mark Zanker on our Facebook pod group. And this is just an excerpt. It's uh, worth checking out the Facebook group to read the full comment. Mark said, this was an excellent podcast and most of the genies that came out of the bottle pleased me greatly. That said, however, there are enormous obstacles in the way of achieving the goal goals identified. Australia seems to be obsessed with the costs of doing even really sensible things. We've become completely absorbed by the economic rationalist approach to public policy. The Commonwealth government we just elected was not elected on the basis of any policy whatsoever other than cuts in taxation, mainly for the benefits of corporations and high-income earners. And at the same time, a forced boast that the budgetary position would be returned to surplus. The two things are completely incompatible. Lots to pick apart there, Glenn, but what are your initial comments? Well, I think Mike is on the money when he says it's very hard as it is for most governments, to reconcile all of the aspirations that were raised during an election campaign. But it's also the case the government made relatively few promises and relatively few commitments, so it has a reasonably free hand. We're about to have the standard post-election mandate argument that we have after every election. Has an elected government got a mandate? Uh, and that will be particularly telling this time round, only because the government offered relatively few uh, sense of direction and indeed stressed continuity and in a sense could argue that its mandate is to continue the things that it uh, was doing. The expectation that it would be a climate change election was clearly disappointed. So those who thought that was going to be the subject are going to struggle to maintain that argument. And so we're going to find some very awkward moments. The Adani decision is emblematic of that, but not the only one, where uh, we're going to hear people saying, no, no, we've had that we've had that argument and it was lost. So I think we've got a difficult public policy conversation ahead where we're very much the, the cards are with the government. It's won. It's, uh, it's got remarkably clean hands in winning because it, it offered so little in specific content, what we used to call program specificity. Uh, and now... Uh, it's going to have to forge an agenda that it can argue is consistent with what it took to the election, even if not specified. For the opposition, exactly the the same dilemma that all oppositions now face. You put your program forward, it was defeated. What do you do now? Uh, Do you repudiate everything you said you stood for, which has a credibility issue? Uh, Do you try and recast it in ways that uh, make it more palatable to take forward? And how in particular do you deal with the problems Uh, that you now face in Queensland, where from the opposition's point of view, having been rejected by everything north of Brisbane and remarkable outcome, truly catastrophic uh, outcome for a party that was founded in Queensland, uh, what's its future in North Queensland and how does it reconcile the expectations of inner-city Brisbane 
which are probably anti-Adani and, and, and in a sense much more pro-environment, with the clear expectations of North Queensland, which is much more focused on jobs, economic development and security. And uh, that is going to be a dilemma for Labor that will, I suspect, take up a lot of the next term. Get you to look into your crystal ball for a second. What do you think the next couple of years are going to look like for Australia policy-wise? Like you said, the coalition went into this with a with a very light uh, policy platform. And as you said, that could go one of two ways. That could be argued that that's an argument for continuity or that's an argument that they've you know now got sort of an, uh, an open slather to put down a whole bunch of strong policies that they wanted to put in place. But what's your take on what the next couple of years are going to look like? Good question, Martin. And we're all so good at predictions, as we all, <laughs> as we all showed in, in the run of the last federal election, <laughs> predicting the result. Uh, we could be seeing the first period of relatively stable government we'll have seen in quite a while. Uh, Prime Minister Morrison has... Uh, the clear support of his party. He's not going to be under threat like the way previous leaders were. A number of his betonoirs in his own side are no longer in the parliament. He has a cleaner run than any prime minister's had now for a very long time. And it may, it, you, know, you never return to normal. I mean, normal's always elusive and it's always somewhere in the past. Uh, but it may be that we get more stability than we've seen and a more considered policy agenda has a time to form. In the first week or two, he's, the Prime Minister has begun to signal the areas he wants to work on. Some of them are relatively conventional economic policy, but he's also begun to signal a couple of uh, traditionally very difficult issues, of which industrial relations is the most obvious, uh, but some interesting s claims that the superannuation system has to change. Now, there's a ten potential um, real touch point for lots of Australians for whom the super system is their future and any government of any persuasion that decides to fiddle with it is taking on a very contentious issue. So we may see on the one hand relative political stability, on the other hand a number of very important uh, policy issues up for grabs. And then of course there's the environment. Yes, we had an election. It wasn't the environment election. The environment does not go away as an issue. And the economics of changing power don't change. So uh, the transition to new forms of energy, renewable energy, will continue apace. The economics of that are driving that to a large extent rather than government policy. And we may find, uh, as in Germany, that as you get a tipping point, as so much power becomes renewable, uh, government's attention has to focus back onto those communities that are displaced by those changes. Instead of talking up new coal mines, they might find themselves in the more difficult situation of trying to reassure those communities they have a future. Well, I've made a note of all of those things, Glenn. So <laughs> in two years' time, we'll get you back into the studio and, and see how your predictions <laughs> stacked up. That is cruel. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thanks for that, Glenn, and thanks for your comment, Mark. Um, the other thing I just want to draw people's attention to is on Policy Forum, our website at the moment, we've got a special section on World Refugee Week. Uh, we've got uh, particularly taking a look at the issue of people displaced by climate change. We've got some pieces there by Jeremy Yude. Rebecca Hingley, uh, Ian Fry, who of course is an international environmental law and policy expert, also uh, Tuvalu's ambassador for climate change and environment, and Patrick Cooney. There's plenty to read there, so I strongly suggest you have a look at that at policyforum.net. Now, I want to quickly have a look at some suggestions for future pods and welcome some of our new members to the Facebook group. So firstly, to welcome the new members, hello to Matthew Donlan, Matt Tibble, Mohamed Firoz Hassan Pavel, Georgia Reinecker, Jess Garrity, Louisa Martinez, John Block, Queenie Markham, JB Preston, and Daniel Rooney. Hello to all of you, and especially to those who uh, let us know what they thought we should talk about on future podcasts. So, uh, JB Preston wrote, We should have a look at politics and international relations, Australia and China. Matt Tibble wrote, future city design consideration in light of all the infrastructure spending. And Daniel Rooney wrote, what is Australia doing in the public diplomacy or overseas media space to promote its views internationally? Al Jazeera, CGTN and RT are presently being used to great effect by their respective states. What do you think about those, Glenn? 
I think they're great subjects. I look forward to hearing you, Martin, tackle each of them. <laughs> Which do you think we should have have a go at first? If if you were doing Policy Shop right now, and those three <laughs> suggestions came across your desk, which one would you uh, which one would you choose? Policy Shop had a deliberately a domestic policy focus overall. Um, so I'd probably go to the international ones out of curiosity to see where they go. Uh, Australia and China is going to be one of the great questions. It doesn't go away. Uh, We have a prime minister about to make a major foreign policy speech, so we'll get a first indication of how a renewed government intends to take the relationship with China in the middle of a looming trade war between the US and China. Where's Australia going to stand? That's, I think absolutely worth investigating. That's a big issue to tackle. I think they're all great suggestions, but I'm particularly keen on Matt Tibble's one on future city design consideration, particularly in view of the sort of smart cities that we're seeing rolling out around the world, particularly in India and China. I think that's a big public policy issue to be grappled with there. But thank you to everyone who made those suggestions. We love hearing suggestions for ideas for the podcast. Jump onto the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, and let us know uh, what you would like to see us cover or reach out to us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then don't forget to hit the subscribe button. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And thanks to everyone who's left us a review, particularly the nice ones. We really appreciate those. Glenn, thank you so much for joining me today. A it's, great pleasure. It's a great pleasure to have you back in the studio. Thank and you, Martin. Hopefully it won't be too long until the next time. Thanks, Martin. And next time I'll be on time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, cheerio. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.